Kaiser Cast episode 29. The guest today is Brandon Stivers. He is our pretreatment rep from Calvary. Calvary is our pretreatment supplier that we've used for several years. Um, so all of our pretreatment that gets done, the chemicals come from them. Brandon has been very helpful. I haven't known him for very long, actually, but he's worked at Calvary for a really long time. Um, but he's a good resource for us at Kaiser, always um, there to answer questions. And um, the few times that I have talked to him uh, about issues and problems, he's always helped fix that fix them. So looking forward to talking to him today. But uh, first, I think we're going to talk about uh, safety a little bit this week. I heard you were injured this week. Yeah, I was using a tool, a cut like a, a knife, essentially. And it was supposed to be one of like the safe box cutters type of things. I was using it to like pry some parts apart from each other that were stuck together. So not using it for its intended use at all. And it snapped. Um, and then I was putting a lot of pressure on it. So my thumb slid across the blade and sliced my thumb open. Um, and of course, so then it was bleeding and all that. It was pretty deep. Um, but I got the bleeding to stop and bandaged it up and just kept on going like I always do. But um, I've got it all bandaged up now. And uh, if you're looking at the video portion, you can see it. Ooh, it's all wrapped up. But that's it, intense. It's doing, it's doing fine now. The first, it, it was really deep, but it kind of all um, laid back on top of itself and, and started to fuse back together pretty quickly. So it aside from the initial bleeding, it really hasn't bled much since, so. So what's the safety lesson? For one, you need to make sure... I should have been wearing gloves. Because if I would have had gloves on, that, it might have maybe cut the glove and got my finger a little bit. Um, but not, not nearly as bad as it did. And then use the tools for what they're intended for. Not for something random like prying parts apart. Ouch. I can just, as you're describing it, I can like picture how I imagine it would feel and it makes my teeth hurt. It didn't really hurt um, at all. I don't know. And it didn't hardly burned or anything. It was just bleeding pretty bad. And just like the sight of it was like, because it was a really deep gash and it kind of goes under my fingernail and stuff. So it was more like freaking out that it, part of my finger might like fall off or something, but but, I, but it wasn't really as bad as I thought it was. Cause I got it covered up so quickly. I didn't really look at it very much at the initial point. So that's good. And thankfully Abby isn't squeamish around blood. Yeah. I had to, I fixed it up once and then I went back to work in and I could tell that I didn't get it quite tight enough. And so then I had to redo it and then she helped me. So. She always knows when I poke my head into her office, like, hey, can I use your help for a minute? She's always like, did you hurt yourself? <laughs> because I, I usually <laughs> don't go in to her office and ask for help. She's going to wind up with uh, an RN degree by the time she's done working at Kaiser. Yeah, I don't hurt myself that much. Though. That's only the second time. It was about That's a year good. ago when I burnt myself really bad. That's right. I forgot about that. But sticking on the topic of safety, I've got a bone to pick that everybody's commenting on some of our TikTok videos right now. <laughs> People are mad. So oh we're back God. to talking about comments on social like we were last week. But 
So I think we were talking about that we um, uh, we we require the guys on the floor to be clean shaven at least around the ceiling surface where the respirator goes on, and everybody is pushing back. Or for the most part, a lot of people are pushing back on that, saying that like you don't have to be clean shaven to get a good seal. Uh, there's multiple people saying that they have a full beard and they can always get their respirator to seal, which I don't know how that's even possible because like that just I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, then there's also people saying like, well, you shouldn't make them wear a respirator that has to seal. You should just be using like an air supplied hood, which would work in the powder booth. I'm not going to disagree with that. But out on the shop floor where we're doing a lot of prepping with chemical or in the wash bay, a half-faced respirator that seals right to your face just works better there. I mean... I can understand a hood in the powder booth because you're already like by an area that has airlines and stuff and you already got hoses. Uh, but when you're out on the shop floor or even in the wash bay, I just don't see how that would would work out that well. And and then on top of it, it's just like I would, what I know about a supplied air hood um, or helmet for blasting, there's so much that needs to go into making sure that that air is safe for you to breathe that like given the choice i'd be like eh i'll pass on the splat air give me a, a regular respirator because like you're trusting that that supplied air is good enough to breathe and that your carbon monoxide monitor is working well so you're not gonna like asphyxiate yourself um right so and i get most people aren't thinking that far into it but the supplied air into a hood like that is some serious stuff right like you're if that is not good breathable air quality, that that could be more detrimental than having a respirator that's not splat air, that's not sealed to your face very well, right? Because, like, if you're getting contaminants pumped into your splat air hood all the time that, like, aren't life-threatening at the moment but over time are bad for you to breathe in, like, it's essentially the same as not wearing a respirator at that point, so. People must just really love their beards. Which is fine, like yeah. But we always make we always say that like right up front. We ask that in the interview, so it's not like we're hiring people and then tell them that they have to shave. Um, but then there's also some comments about like saying that if we require that, that like we're evil or something. It's just like, well, we the reason why we wear respirators is because <laughs> if you breathe the stuff in, it's bad for you. So it's not we're we're not just making people do it because we want to. It's like we're just trying to be safe, so. Right. And also, the, it's not. Sorry, go ahead. The OSHA regulation is that you have to be clean shaven around the ceiling surface, so I, we're just following what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, it's just not that strange to me that a job would have certain requirements around appearance, like. There's a lot of industries where you can't really, like food service, for instance, you either can't have a beard or you have to wear like that facial met or whatever. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of jobs where they tell you like, I can't dye my hair purple or I can't like there's certain, I can't wear press on nails. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a lot of jobs that have physical guidelines for no real reason other than that's just the employer's preference. And at least in our case, like there is a reason that we're asking for this. It's not because we're trying to control your face. It's like a safety issue. Yeah. And so it's just been interesting, like the the blowback we've gotten. Um, but one guy did say that you can get positive pressure masks. I didn't That's know what he's about talking this. about with the supplied air. 
Oh, gotcha. Okay. Because you have positive pressure inside the hood, so nothing. Because you're gotcha. pumping air into it. Yeah, that's what he means by that. I see. Anyway, I thought it's kind of funny. People are people are upset. On I just don't account. understand how anybody could argue that they wear a respirator and they get a good seal over top of a beard because it's like just think about sealing anything and putting coarse facial hair in between right. a sealing surface like this i mean you might be sealing to some degree but i don't know i it, that's one where i just like i just shake my head because like that just doesn't add up like come on you know, yeah like common sense tells you that it's not sealing yeah that's a big gamble to take with your lungs All right, so now we're going to get Brandon on the phone here, and uh, we'll talk to him for a little bit. Like I said, he's from Calvary. Not, I don't exactly know if he spent his whole career at Calvary or not. We're going to find that out and kind of find out how he got started in the industry and how much experience he, he does have. I'm honestly not quite certain, but I do know anytime I ask him a question, he has a very tactical answer that's... Um, always correct when I've talked to him. So I think that he does have quite a bit of experience, but he's going to tell us about that. I know you from working at Calvary a little bit, but what is, and that's going to be pre-treatment chemicals and, and everything to do with coatings and the pre-treatment of coatings. That's how I know you. How did you get to your current position? And I guess how long have you been in the pre-treatment industry? Uh, wow, longer than I want to admit. Um, I, I went to work. Well, let, let me give a little background before that. I was in, uh, served in the U.S. Navy for five years and got out of the Navy and could, could not find a job anywhere. Um, Cracker Barrel turned me down and said that I was, uh, not qualified, uh, to work for them because I didn't have any experience. So thankfully, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife for 25 years, um, she had a family member that was in the, the pre-treatment industry, worked for a company called Houghton International, which is now Houghton, Quaker Houghton. And he saw potential in me and brought me on board at Houghton. And I spent 17 years there from that day on and uh, started out as a tech service rep. I had nothing to do with sales. Um, my sole job was to take care of General Electric in Louisville, Kentucky, their zinc phosphate line on their um, dishwasher racks. And th thankfully, I had a mentor that just totally invested in me. And I'm just going to mention his name, a guy named Pat Haggerty. He's retired now, but um, he, he cared more about um, the people and making sure that the legacy moved on and that people knew this industry as opposed to just bringing people on board to get new business. So he took his time in technically bringing me up to speed, making sure that I knew what I was doing as opposed to just uh, turning pink to clear and clear to pink and stuff like that. How, so, long, how long did you get to work with him and, and learn from him? Uh, I worked directly under him for about three and a half years. Okay. Um, man, this guy was just, he was the sharpest to this day. I mean, he's kind of a legend in our industry. Um, he you, was, his name is Pat. What was his last name? Pat Haggerty. Okay. Um, he was with a company called Novamax. Um, many years ago, Hinkle ended up acquiring Novamax. And um, instead of all those guys going to Novamax, or excuse me, going to Hinkle, 
Houghton Metal Finishing started their own company um, under Houghton International. And that's really how I got my start in the business. We all came over at one time and we had no business to start and ended up growing the business to about 40 million in sales over a 10, 15 year period. Can you still get a hold of Pat? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I'd like to meet him sometime. I really like, I'm really interested in pre-treatment like you kind of know. And uh, I like meeting the industry veterans that just have done it forever. And I like them to see our process and like point out the stuff that's wrong and bad and they think that we could improve on. And so you said that um, at Novamax is where you st- it, like grew it from scratch or is that the next company after? Yeah, yeah. Houghton Metal Finishing is where I went to work. And okay. Houghton in today's world is... Quaker Houghton, who then acquired Coral. Okay. So so they're all one big, happy okay. family. Okay. And I was there seven, 17 years. Okay. So was Pat a chemist by training? Like, how does someone learn this stuff? He did not have, he didn't even have a bachelor's degree. And so to kind of circle back to who I am, my background, education, all that, um, when I got out of the Navy, I went to school at night, went to college at night, and got my bachelor's degree in um, organizational management, which had nothing to do with pretreatment chemicals. But again, since I had Pat, um, I didn't feel like I needed the, the 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 technical degree because he was teaching me the day to day. But now he didn't even, as far as I know, I don't even think he had a bachelor's degree. He just, you know, he dug his heels in and learned the business the hard way. Um, probably one of the most respected people in our industry for the past 30 years. Well, more than that now, probably 50 years of what I'm dating myself. That's amazing. Cause I feel like of all of this, like bodies of knowledge to kind of throw yourself into with no educational background, like chemistry has got to be the hardest, doesn't it? Well, you, you either get it or you don't. And it, it, it flushes you out very quickly. Sure. Um, and then, I mean, I, I don't want to skip forward to probably, you know, future questions, but I think that's the biggest problem we have in our industry is the lack of succession planning. But I mean, that's why, you know, when we hire folks that are, you know, in their twenties and in their thirties, you know, invest in them, spend the time to not just tell them, just make sure it turns pink or it turns clear or it turns blue or it turns green, but tell them why you know, teach people how to troubleshoot. Yeah, that's probably the biggest weakness in our industry right now is not knowing how to troubleshoot and diagnose a problem. Right. So is, is Calvary investing and in training up its, its next generation or does that kind of fall on you as the person? No, it's, it is definitely a, a company. And, and here's, here's where we, uh, or maybe I, I feel like I'm very fortunate. My boss is 33 years old. Um, and he listens to me and the advice that I give him. And I tell him, you know, we need to be planning not just for the next generation, but for two generations. And so we're, we are always actively looking for, and I don't want to say young talent because we hire people my age and older, but we also hire people, prime example, we just hired a guy um, six, eight months ago that didn't have any chemical experience. But he was somebody that we felt had the aptitude to learn it, and so you know we we were taking the steps to treat uh, to teach them what we feel they need to know. And I'm a big fan of 
we're, we're all retreads at some point. We've worked for other companies, but I love to hire somebody that doesn't have the baggage. You know, bring somebody in that we can teach what we feel is important from from the from a foundation standpoint, so they can know the basics of the industry and not be swayed by maybe some of the things they've learned in sales one hundred and one training. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're hiring these people, if you're not looking for a specific background, what are you looking for? Like what tells you that someone's going to do a good job at this? Um, I, I can typically tell personally, uh, well, it's, uh, let me, let me back up. There's probably two different things. One people buy from people. Um, so, so you've got to be somebody that we think that the customer is going to relate to. You know, customers don't want to be talked over. They don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be talked ahead of. Um, you've got to find someone that's willing to kind of put their ego aside. So that's the first thing I look for is somebody who's, who's humble. Because even though I've been doing this 25 years, every startup I have on a new paint line, I see something I've never seen before and I learn something different. So it's got to be someone who has a, a sense of humility. But it also has to, you've got to have some type of basic uh, common sense. Um, and how I uncover that is, you know, I ask them the, the basic interview type questions just to see, you know, how they would handle things. You know, how do you deal with adversity? How do you deal with rejection? And adversity and rejection are, are unfortunately what you encounter, you know, a lot of the times in our industry. Yeah, there's always something that's coming up that's a problem that something went wrong and then you got to try to figure out why that happened and fix it almost every day. Yeah, exactly. So you spent 17 years at Halton. Am I saying that right? Which yes, you are. Okay. And then from there, did you go straight to Calvary or was there something in between? No, um, I, I, I kind of went off into the desert for a short period of time. When I was at Halton, I kind of worked my way up the ladder and I was doing a tremendous amount of international travel. Um, and when I say a tremendous amount, I was going for two weeks at a time for, you know, five, six, seven trips a year. So when you say international, what, like, is that Mexico or is that Europe? Uh, India, China, uh, Europe, Japan, really all over the place. What, uh, and maybe it'll be too much to go in depth, but is it, is pretreatment different in other countries? Meaning, I know the chemicals are probably the same, but do b people view it differently or is there different ways of doing it? Or is it viewed differently when you're going from place to place that's so culturally different? I mean, the hardest part, and this is where I was really challenged, was I was working for a company, a, a global company that didn't have a presence on the pretreatment side in the other, in, in the other parts of the globe where they were very strong on the metalworking side. Okay. Probably no, probably number two in, in the industry of metalworking. But my job was to go and introduce and launch the pretreatment side of the business in all the country countries that we just mentioned. So I, I wouldn't say it's different as far as the, the sales cycles are the same. The, uh, decision makers are the same and the challenges are the same. Um, you're just adding a, another degree to it because from what I was dealing with, I didn't have, I, I, I couldn't tell you 10 other customers 
in country that I was doing business with. And that made it extremely difficult. Okay. Cause they were looking at you like, who are you? Why would we? Yeah. Who are you guys? Okay. Yep. How were you able to communicate? Did you have to have a translator with you or did most people speak English? Yeah. I mean, most, most of the places, um, actually almost every place I, I went, um, well, I did have sponsorship, you know, if I would go to India or if I go to China or if I, Japan, wherever it was, I would have somebody assigned from our company to travel with me the whole time. But I mean, we're talking major OEMs okay. um, at these places and you either have expats or the, the people who are local, I'd say 95, but I have, I have more trouble and I do a lot in Japan or excuse me, uh, Mexico right now. I have more trouble in Mexico than I ever did in Asia or Europe or any of those areas. So you're still traveling for work then? Yeah. I mean, uh, um, my, my responsibilities with Calvary, um, even though my, my title is corporate account manager, um, I have, I have direct sales reps that report to me throughout North America. Um, but I also am responsible for, um, sales growth on my own, which is what I prefer. I mean, I like to be in front of the customer. You know, I, I live four and a half hour drive from the Calvary office. So I'm not in the office every day. I'm on the road um, every week, whether it's seeing existing customers or trying to um, bring new customers on board. I was just wondering, so we know Calvary is our supplier of pretreatment chemicals, um, but what other chemical solutions do you provide and to what industries? I, I, would, I always tell everyone, um, I consider Calvary one of the best kept secrets in the industry. Um, we're obviously a major player in the pretreatment world, um, but I also uh, sell a significant amount of business through Calvary, and we sell as a company in wastewater treatment, whether that be industrial wastewater or iron, zinc, zirconium, phosphate, stuff like that, um, electroplating, electroplating plants who are uh, very heavily involved in uh, wastewater, as well as dairy slash uh, food processing. Uh, and most people don't know that about us. And, you know, we're also very strong in um, metalworking fluids. So we sell coolants, cutting fluids, fire-resistant hydraulics, uh, things of that nature. And even though it sounds, it sounds very broad, it's still all complementary business to our core business being the pretreatment. So most of our pretreatment customers, if they're an OEM, They've got some some form of, of fabricating, so we're able to sell them the, the ancillary products. Or a lot of them, if they have paint lines, they do have wastewater treatment. So we're able to sell the wastewater chemistry along with it. So do you specialize in all of that, or do you specifically focus on pretreatment chemicals? How does that work? Um, my focus is on the pretreatment, but I'm well-versed and all of it just because I've been doing it long enough that I know when I walk through a plant, if I'm going on a plant tour and I'm going after a seven stage washer, but I see rolling mills or tube mills or stamping or drawing. Um, I know that I'm, I'm making a note in the back of my mind. that That's something we can also supply. And it's, it's very much a complimentary business too. Um, it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to remove the soils, if you know what the soils are, and it's a lot easier to treat 
as far as waste treatment goes, you know, if, if you know what you're trying to treat. So it's, uh, it's very much uh, complimentary business for us. Yeah, that makes sense. It's so interesting. And so you literally are just jumping into kind of a new scenario every day, evaluating what you know, evaluating what you don't know, and then learning on the job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not as cumbersome as that, as that may sound. Uh, just because once you've been, I mean, in my career, I've probably started up 150 different paint lines. You know, and that's from a, a, a single spray wand type system all the way up to a 13-stage zinc phosphate. So it's it's not as, I don't want to say it's not challenging. It is challenging, but it's not as intimidating as it may sound. It's not it's not new, new every day. Yeah, challenges can be new. Is this another day at the office for you? Really, like it's it's what you've done for so long, and you obviously enjoy doing it. That's why you've done it for so long. So you just roll up your sleeves and get after it, right? You know, Jason. None, nobody that we're and it's not that we have tons of friends, but any of our friends, when they ask what I do, my wife tries to explain it first. And then I try to explain it like, you know, as you probably do in your business, you don't wake up one day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go sell pretreatment chemicals for a living. And then you try to uh, teach them. The best thing that happened to me is I had a startup 20 years ago before, well, 21 years ago before my youngest or oldest child was born. And the owner of the company said, and this was a five stage washer. He goes, why don't you bring your wife with you for the weekend? So my wife did a descale on a five-stage washer with me and a charge-up and started running production on Sunday night and actually saw what I did for a living. So now it's fun for me to hear her describe what I do to people who ask, what does he do? And she's like, just picture a big car wash and a bunch of metal parts going through that car wash before they get painted. <laughs> and that, that's how she describes it. That's a really good way to describe it, though. Makes sense. So I um, just so that our listeners can hear it from someone other than us, why should powder coaters make pretreatment a priority and what happens when they don't? Well, I think I think a good example, and I'm, I don't want to be repetitive, casket manufacturer that I mentioned that the, the uh, caskets did not get pretreated. In my opinion, and this is my humble opinion, pretreatment is the lifeline of a plant. Um, if uh, I've asked myself a thousand times during my career, why I didn't go into selling powder because it's so much easier to get a box of powder tried. Um, you can send a box of powder in and they can try it. It either works or it doesn't. Um, many times, especially with automated lines, um, you're going to shut the whole plant down and, or you may not even know you have problems until six months down the road or three months down the road when parts start coming back from the field with failures. Um, I, I guess trying to educate our customers is the biggest challenge on that, on, on why pretreatment is so important. Um, but yeah, it is, it is definitely, it is definitely the lifeline of any finishing manufacturing plant. Pretreatment goes down, the plant goes down. So when you get ready to go into cell chemical to a new facility, whether it's a really large one or um, small one. 
and you're trying to show that your chemical is better than what they're using or better than others. Uh, how do you go about doing that? Do you rely on wanting to do testing to like prove it on paper? Like, Hey, if we, I know that you like your current supplier, um, but let's, let's do some test parts with your current pretreatment. Let's do some test parts with our pretreatment and we can compare the differences. And if, if your current supplier is better than and does better in the testing that I'm going to leave you alone or, or how do you go about doing that? Or, or does it new business mainly come from when people are having problems? So they're looking elsewhere. Well, I mean, it's a combination of both. I mean, obviously from a sales standpoint, we love to walk into a place to where they just tell us, yeah, we're struggling here. I mean, I'm calling on a major OEM right now in Alabama that's having more problems than I can even describe. But my approach is maybe I make it too simple. You're dealing with pretty much three different areas with customers. You've got quality. So when I go into a place, the number one thing I tell them is, if, if I don't have the business, I'll just say, look, everything I'm going to tell you going forward is under the assumption or, or that I, I pretty much know that I have to, at a minimum, meet or exceed where you are quality wise now, because I'm not going to ask a customer to take a step backwards in quality. And then you got the second tier of it, which is cost or overall savings. So once I establish that, and I pretty much know based on who they're using and maybe if they've shared some results of what they're seeing right now, pretty much know if I can meet or exceed, um, which I, I automatically assume I can I can do that, but then take the cost factor into it because owners, owners and plant managers, pretty much no one below that level really truly cares about cost savings. They may say they do, but if it doesn't affect their bottom line, they just want ease of use and they want to make sure they don't have any problems. And then the third factor that I bring into it is service. You know, how much better are we going to be able to meet the, meet your requirements as far as customer service, making sure we're available. If like you guys, you never call because if you don't, if you're not having issues, but if you do call, make sure you answer or get back very quickly. And those are the three areas that I focus on and probably in that particular order too. Quality has got to be there. Cost has to be factored into it, and then ultimately customer service. So once you get your chemicals into a, a new plant and they're starting to um, use you or you've done a startup with them and you're getting ready to leave, what are some of the key guidelines that you give them to kind of manage their line in terms of, like we've talked a little bit, or you mentioned titrations as we've been talking through this, um, conversation, but are there some specific areas that you want them to check on regularly to make sure that, um, they are kind of doing that preventative maintenance? Cause I think on the one hand, it's like preventative maintenance on the equipment, but also it's, it's kind of preventative maintenance on the actual chemistry too, correct? To make sure that all every, the concentrations of the chemicals, correct. The pHs are correct. Yeah. I mean, Again, because I've 
had the privilege of doing this so long. I'm all about proactive versus reactive. When I go into a place, I want to make sure that we've established training up front to make sure that the, and this is in new customers that have not been using my chemistry before, but to make sure that the operators know how to do the titrations. And more important than that, I, I have a document that I put together every time I do a new customer startup. And it says, the title of it is what to expect with, and then fill in the blank. If it's wastewater, I'll say what to expect with Calvary's wastewater chemistry or what to expect with zirconium versus traditional iron phosphate or, or vice versa. Just, and the reason I do that going to the proactive versus reactive is anytime somebody makes a change on the finishing line, I don't know how you guys sleep the night before because I would be so nervous because that, again, that is your business. That is your lifeline. Um, but it's much easier if, let's say you're putting in a chemistry that the parts are going to look a little different than what you're used to seeing. If the customer sees that ahead of time, oh, wait a minute, he did tell us this. Look at this. He said, number two, point number two, expect to see the part look this way or expect within your first few weeks of production, your chemistry usage is going to be higher based on X or Y. So I'm I'm very big proponent of being proactive in the training process, and so there's very there's uh, minimal surprises going forward. That's great. Um, kind of along those training lines, what is one thing that you wish more of your customers knew or did differently? I think the biggest challenge I have with customers on the pre-treatment finishing paint side is what has happened to salt spray salt spray has become the end all be all and i can go back through the history of what the reason salt spray was implemented 25 years ago you had major appliance oem manufacturers where as long as you got 504 hours of salt spray and a rating of six or better you were golden i have customers today that manufacturer filing cabinets or office furniture that's going to sit in 72 degree weather for their entire life. They want 2,500 hours of salt spray. So that's probably the biggest challenge that I've seen. And if I could get through to the customers and say, look, salt spray is the necessary evil, but let's make sure we're using it for the right reasons and, and not just, uh, just for overkill. To unrealistic expectations really or unrealistic requirements for a particular application and that probably stems from just not them not being educated enough about pretreatment and what you're actually specifying in that high of a salt it's, spray right it's so much it's so much a, a misinformed part of our industry but even more so than that i have customers who get upset when i come in trying to get business and i'll say if i'm presenting my parts to be powder coated, I'll say, hey, would you mind if I ran some some of your parts through to do a side-by-side comparison? And I would like to include a, a B1000 or two control panel to just to see what the capabilities, because you'd be shocked how many customers want 1,500 hours, but if you read the SDA or the TDS for the powder, that powder is only capable of 250 hours. Yeah, so, so they're wanting the pre-treatment to make up the difference. Right. 
where are they getting this idea that it needs to do this? I, I, I wish I could tell you it would make my life so much easier, but it is, it is just progressive. Go ahead, Jason. Probably stems down from architectural where architects have get really detailed with specs and engineers get really detailed with specs. And even though they have the best, um, intention in mind since they don't actually have experience doing it and they're not consulting with somebody like Brandon saying hey here's the situation here's what we try we're trying to get what we want the outcome to be what do we need to specify here I think they just go on the end of we're just going to over specify to make sure that we're good but then it it when it comes into being practical like what Brandon is saying then it just doesn't even make sense when you're looking at the specification for a specific part because it can be achieved, but it's like, what? It doesn't, why do we need to go to all this work when you don't even need what you're specifying for? So I think it comes down to people specifying things that they just don't really understand. And Chloe, I think uh, while Jace was talking, I was thinking, one of the driving factors in that is obviously past experience with field failures. You know, you, you get right. a quality manager who's, who's had a, a claim against them and had X number of parts come back from the field. Well, if 500 hours is good, well, a thousand hours should be great. You know what? Right. They don't want to go. They don't want to go through that again. So it's like they've been burned and they're overcorrecting. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, we are coming up on an hour. I just wanted to um, kind of end things off with kind of a practical questions for, you know, for some of the younger powder coaters who might be listening, who are kind of new to the industry, what sets a good chemical supplier apart from a bad one? And how can they know that they're getting good products? If, if, if I were to own Brandon Stiver's powder, powder coating, and I was evaluating suppliers, I would I would have two requirements. I want to make sure that my supplier is willing to get dirty with me. You know, roll the sleeves up, be on site, you know, do what needs to be done to get the job done. But I, I would also want to make sure that they were very capable of troubleshooting and and, and, the, and not not necessarily just troubleshooting. I think one of the questions that does not get asked enough for potential suppliers that I'm competing with for my competition, I always ask the question, why don't you ask your supplier who else they're supplying in the area? You know, just ask for a list of references. Look, we go out every day and buy stuff as, as consumers. And for the most part, we always want to know who else you're doing business with. If you can have a guy put a roof on your house, you're going to want to know where else they've done it or build a deck or whatever else you're going to want references. I think it needs to be the same way. That's why I've had so much success in my career. My customers do the majority of my selling for me. If I'm going after a big chunk of business and as long as they're not direct competitors, I have no problem asking a, a customer of mine to give myself and my company a reference based on the work we've done for them. And that speaks volume. So, Make sure that 
that whoever you're evaluating has other customers and make sure they're willing to, to get dirty and roll their sleeves up. <laughs> when I show, when I show up, whatever my role is, I want, I want to make sure that the customer knows that I'm there to work. You'll never see me show up in a pair of tassel shoes or dress pants and a dress shirt. You know, I want to make sure they know that I'm there to work. Oh, I like that. And that's the most important thing for me as a powder coating shop is that our reps that come in, whether they're pre-treatment or for the powder itself, I like to see people that are going to, like you said, roll up their sleeves and dive in and help fix a problem right there on the spot because then you, I feel like then you can really trust them. Um, you know that they're basically backing up everything that they've told you because they're right there with you doing it. It's all about being in the trenches together. And that's the way this business is. When things are good, we all rejoice in it together. When things are bad, we better all be in there together trying to figure it out why it's bad. Definitely. I think that's a good way to, good note to end on right there. Um, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's about an hour's worth of talking. Um, got to know you a little better. I know you a little bit, um, but this helps me get to know you even more. So really appreciate what you do for us as a chemical supplier and for just taking time to, to talk to us. No, I appreciate it. I considered it a, an honor when you guys asked me to come on. So um, anything I can do, just let me know. Will do. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. All Thanks, right, Brandon. All right. So that was a good conversation with Brandon. Got to know him a little bit better. I actually have uh, even more respect for him now, now that he went through all of his uh, experiences. I didn't realize that he's been in the industry for that long, but it makes 100% sense based on all the conversations that him and I have had um, about pretreatment processes. Uh, I agree with a lot of the stuff, almost everything that he said. Um, if you follow any of our content, you know that I'm really believe in pretreatment and think that it's really, really important. Um, it's one of the more, it's probably the most difficult thing that we do to be able to do it consistently and track it and watch over it and do the preventative maintenance like what Brandon was talking about. Um, and it's just, it's always nice to have a rep that is more of a technical rep or starts as a technical rep and then becomes a sales rep, which is exactly what, uh, how his career started. And he was a technical rep for a very long time. And that's what makes him such a good sales rep now, in my opinion, because he's seen almost all the problems. Obviously, you're always learning something new, but he has seen a ton of stuff from the technical side working in the field on pretreatment lines. And so he can draw on all that experience to help his current customers and new customers. Um, and that's just experience that's priceless. And so when you're going to buy pretreatment chemicals or powder or whatever, it's always, in my opinion, it's always better to be working with a rep that has a lot of technical background and now has just started to do sales toward on the latter part of their career because they can help you so much and they can help you pick better products and then just help your overall quality. Um, and you're not necessarily really even having to pay for that. Um, but you're just 
you, you're getting lucky that you have a rep that is so experienced. So right. now we can get into our social media comment of the day, which kind of ties to a little bit towards the safety topic that we discussed at the top of the show. It um, happened on LinkedIn. And it was on a, a picture of Stan who was moving some drive shafts and he was wearing gloves. And the post said that there are two reasons to wear work gloves when handling coated parts. Number one is to protect your hands from the parts. And number two is to protect the parts from your hands. Um, and Christopher Redding commented, and I think it kind of fits with what we were just talking about with Brandon. The comment is, number one is obvious. Number two, not so much. I've seen it more times than I can count. Same space on every part has outgassing, and it corresponds to where the part hanger grabs the part. No gloves on the folks hanging parts. Nobody ever seems to believe that the bit of oil on your hands can make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from the one hand, like we were just talking, if I would have had gloves on, from a safety standpoint, probably wouldn't have cut my hand as bad. Um, but then again, you're hands always have greases and oils on them if they didn't they would be dry and cracked always um so your hands are moist not be i mean partly because of water but mostly because there's oils all over them that your body's producing so if you're grabbing parts um and then the pretreatment isn't getting that off of there then yeah you absolutely can see outgassing and oil spots where someone was grabbing with hands. So protecting the parts from your hands with gloves is actually really important. So I'm glad that uh, Christopher, he was, uh, I'm not sure where he works now, but he was a powder rep for a while. That's how I knew him. And uh, he's a smart guy and he's been on a lot of uh, manufacturing facilities and a lot of plants. So that that's a hundred percent true. I agree with him. So it was a nice positive social media comment to end the day. Yeah. All right. That pretty much is going to wrap up KaiserCast episode 29. Until next time. See you later.